0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So tonight I'd like to talk about equanimity as a taste of freedom, and of course I don't have to tell you that it's not easy being a human being. and One of the things that happens on retreat is we naturally become more sensitive. And with that sensitivity, we notice how persistently we're pushed around by the tendencies of the mind, basically pushed around by our habits of liking and not liking and hopes and fears, all the dualities. And even when we sense authentically that we're suffering, like real some wisdom, you know, we really get that we're getting pushed around, we really get that we're suffering, the only thing that occurs to us is to do more of the same, to find something to like, to want, to find something to get rid of, so that I'll feel better. So equanimity, sort of both calm and then as our understanding of what calm, being calm, being tranquil is, you know, we can use that word equanimity or nuanced word, really stands like a beacon because even on our, you know, kind of from our ordinary point of view, we do have some sense of what it is to be calm or equanimous in our lives. And it's kind of a radical juxtaposition to our normal, you know, um, being caught, being attracted and caught by intensity and fear failure and hope for success and that whole dance. And you know, the habit would be to equate equanimity and calm with somebody who's just not living or avoiding, almost kind of like a depression. Oh, it's too bad, they're equanimous, <laughs> they're calm. I'll just tell them about some of the TV programs I've seen recently, and that will help, or about this new restaurant, or this new this, or this new that, or global warming, that ought to get them going. (laughs) And equanimity in the text, in the Buddhist tradition, is often aligned when it's talked about with mindfulness and clear comprehension. So it, it really isn't something that stands apart. It really is connected with being connected, with being real, with seeing clearly the way it is. And that's so interesting because normally we would presume that being intimate being connected with the way it is, would evoke agitation. You know, how many of us have fantasies about getting away from it all, whatever, you know, our fantasies might look a little different, but it's basically some vision of not being tormented by life, by what we find agitating in life. And what the Buddha is saying is that the more, this is sort of the, the basic premise of freedom and equanimity, the more the mind is connected, the more the mind is intimate, the more the mind and heart feel and see things as they are, the natural result is equanimity, not agitation, not restlessness, not upset, That's sort of a interesting presumption. I mean, for me, it seems worthy of checking out, like, is that actually true? And we're getting little doses of that on retreat because we're sitting here in the relative simplicity of the schedule, not a lot happening, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, <laughs> lunch, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. <laughs> So basically it's not that exciting, and in that relative simplicity we see all the unattended, unfinished wounds and sorrows and hopes and dreams. They will arise. I had some poignant memories of elementary school today. That I don't remember having in decades and decades. You know, all the <coughs> strings that can be strummed will be strummed on retreat, right? Anything, any heart strings that can reverberate, generally something will arise to cause them to vibrate. And we'll have that poignant and sometimes really intensely unpleasant, intensely pleasant. But we'll have a lot of poignant feelings and it will always, you know, because of our conditioning, because it feels, life feels, the heart feels so meaningful, it always feels like somebody should do something. Like I was thinking, oh, I really should reach out to those people. I got an email from three people who I went to grade school, first grade through eighth grade with. You know, literally people I haven't heard from since I was, you know, whatever, 14. Uh, But the school and church, I went to Catholic school for the first, those first eight years of elementary school and middle school, but the closing it down in North Minneapolis where I grew up. So they were reaching out, just letting me know. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's interesting how all of that memory and the feelings that go with the memory, like it's hard to be both intimate and just let it keep moving. You know, the mind wants to determine some action or some resolution of what's being felt, instead of being content, equanimous, with the poignancy of whatever's being felt. One quote I like from Reb Anderson, some of you know him, he's a well-known Zen teacher, does come to Minnesota to teach um, with the Zen Centers in town. He's up at uh, Green Gulch Farm, which is run by the San Francisco Zen Center, north of San Francisco. And uh, But in one of his books I read, he has this really simple statement where he says, ordinary people are vulnerable some of the time. And something like wise people, well-practiced people, they're vulnerable all the time. And uh, this is the thing about equanimity, the reason why it's so valued as a quality in uh, Buddhist teachings, is because it's actually that quality, it's in a way both the means and the ends of practice, the flavor of how we practice and the flavor of the fruit that arises because we're practicing. And so as a means to practice equanimity, it's like it's not actually possible to connect with any moment of experience without equanimity, because when some experience arises, doesn't matter what it is, could be neutral, could be intensely pleasant, intensely unpleasant, there's gonna be a conditioned response to ignore the neutral, to attack the unpleasant, to grasp, hold on to the pleasant. So there's really no way for my heart to have an authentic, intimate, connection with the reality of the moment without equanimity, because I'll be left just with the conditioned response based on the feeling of whatever it is that's arising. But with equanimity, like one of the characteristics of equanimity is it's not confused by the feeling tone. No, it's really pleasant, it's really unpleasant, it's really neutral. But I'm not confused by the feeling tone in that moment. My heart, my mind is dependent on it. It's not that somehow the mind has transcended or is unaware that it's really unpleasant now or it's really pleasant now or it's really neutral now. It's just that the mind is developing a different relationship with the feeling the feeling tone and we learn this initially just by having experience with the feeling tone is good enough you know one of the nice things about these buddhist retreats that we organize we do our best to have you know conditions be relatively pleasant and neutral you know the place the food isn't meant to dazzle us, it's meant to be nutritious and to help set aside the kind of anxiety that would be there if we felt like we were being starved or that, you know, wasn't interesting enough. So it's not just oatmeal, but it's prunes and walnuts and granola and raisins to put on the oatmeal, so it's, it's got something there that makes it feel like, uh, yeah, that we can be intimate with it, we can receive it. So we, we take advantage of times that are relatively neutral, where contentment comes relatively easily, because we can get a sense of that flavor of equanimity. You know, it doesn't last long, but sometimes when we sit down in the meditation hall, the first few minutes there's some equanimity with the bodily posture before it starts to hurt, right? Oh well, yeah, this isn't so bad. Or the the beginning of the walking before we get bored. Or the mosquitoes start to bite or something. You know, oh yeah, this is good for the first few days of the retreat or first few hours of the retreat. Oh yeah, this this should be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but we want to take advantage of those neutral <clears throat> and relatively pleasant times. You know, you sit down in the lounge looking at the bird feeder and it's relatively entertaining for a few minutes. And to just notice the mind when it doesn't need the moment to be different than it is. We tend to notice the mind when it wants things to be different. But do we notice the mind when there's some contentment? And this means we're starting to be interested in and value calm and equanimity. Oh, this is interesting. This is the mind that currently in this moment for a few moments, isn't actively needing the moment to be different. Well, let me get interested in what this is like. What is this? So actually then the object of awareness is that attitude of equanimity, or calm, or contentment, or whatever the particular wholesome quality, because... That's part of what inspires us on this whole path, is we're getting, you know, messily, we're getting this intuition of another possibility. Because the possibility we know is the restless dance of trying to get what we want and get away from what we don't want. And there's enough we get, you know, depending on our location, in life, the privilege, privileges we have, we get just enough from that dance of struggling to get what we want, struggling to get away from what we don't want, and struggling to ignore things that are neutral, because it's neither what I want nor what I'm afraid of. And we get enough intensity and enough juice that that kind of seems to work, like it keeps us distracted enough so that we don't realize how empty, unfulfilling that kind of life is. We're so busy getting what we want, getting away from what we don't want and ignoring neutral, that we don't realize, as one, I think it was uh, Kabir, this Indian poet from several centuries back, we end up with an empty apartment in the city of death. He has a line in one of his poems that's like that, end up in an empty apartment in the city of death. You know, because we basically li- lived a life we, where we were acting out habits, culturally conditioned habits, to, like most animals, chase after the pleasant, push away the unpleasant, ignore everything else. So with some perspective, some pointing out instructions usually, and some practice, we start to take a good look at that way of living, and it breaks our heart, like, oh, what's the point? And either we'll slide into despair, or we'll look for another possibility. And this is where we're willing to take another look at what people have been saying about equanimity, calm, contentment. But it's really, these instructions are really pointing to a radically different relationship with experience even though we have some mundane experiences of contentment, like when the conditions, the circumstances are just the way I want, like I mentioned, we can really get curious about that now that we've gotten interested. We know that the contentment we're experiencing is temporary and dependent on the objects of experience, the objects that I'm experiencing being pleasant or suitable, But we're interested in the mind that's not reacting, not needing the moment to be different, and we're wondering if this way of being could be could possibly be generalized to any circumstance, even when the conditions or circumstances are not the way I want. You see, so we stumble upon equanimity when, you know, those times when things are the way we want them. But we can get a taste. I mean, this is brought to the nth degree in concentration practice, right? Where we, we on purpose, train the mind to retreat from gross sense experience into the stillness, the silence, the simplicity, the empty space of the mind, but we treated not being impinged upon by sights and sounds and gross level of thought it's just in this very still quiet spacious refined space of the mind and it's nice there and so in that the sort of to the nth degree would be one of the jhana states like the fourth jhana it's characterized by equanimity, a profound, profound equanimity. Because the mind has retreated from the experience and the idea of good and bad. So it's so in its own space, away from kind of the more gross way of thinking and relating, that it's even retreated from ideas of good and bad. Right? So it that's why it's characterized by equanimity. But of course, it's temporary, right? It's totally dependent on being in that really quiet, concentrated state of mind. Now, we can get a gross equivalent, like I've been saying, when conditions are really the way we want them to be. Our partner is treating us the way we want to be treated. The cat is acting the way we like the cat to act. The weather's the way we like it to be. The news is the way we like it to be. Conditions at work are the way we like it to be. People laugh at our jokes. You know, all those that we got the right food in the refrigerator, good ball movement. You know, it's like everything's just right. <laughs> And uh, we can know that, like a wise person understands that, it won't always be this way. But while it is this way, let me notice, let me bring into the forefront, right? Mindfulness keeps something in mind. Let me keep this attitude of equanimity, this beautiful balance of the mind that doesn't need conditions to be other than the way that they are. Because now the mind can be both intimate, right? It's not distant, it's intimate, open, okay being a sensitive human being, and non reactive, peaceful, the peace of non reactivity. We get a little taste. Now that the trouble is, One of the deep ways our mind is conditioned is that when we do have nice conditions like that, we're not interested in being interested, right? We're interested in checking out. It's like, I don't have to be interested now because I have what I like. So part of our conditioning is when things are nice, you don't have to be awake, because you feel really good, you feel safe because conditions are the way you like. So the people who have favorable conditions are privileged, and you know they have a beautiful body and respected in society, and nice place to live, and all of that kind of stuff. The tendency is to not be very curious, right? Sort of. You know, I'm not sure if this, I'm reading into it, but it's sort of like, I don't want to be curious because I might ruin it. So instead I'll be oblivious so that I, there's no chance that I'll do something that ruins my nice situation. You know how it is. It's sort of like we got a nice situation going and then we remember that there are a lot of people who are suffering and we could help. What a way to ruin a good day, (laughs) you know, to feel responsible for the suffering in the world, the suffering around us. So this this is the approach, though. It's like we gain some respect for equanimity, and then we learn how it can hold up with exposure to reality more and more. And this is really the path of equanimity. But it's really okay to initially be creative, be intelligent about how you can find that relative safety and comfort. Ideally, we'd be, all of us, we'd be talented enough to get into the fourth jhana and hang out there whenever we need to remember the experience of the heart not needing conditions to be different than they are, to have a really deep taste of non-reactivity, of calm, of peace, so that then we could then, and this is really like the ideal way the Buddha taught to practice is, you go into the deep state of the fourth jhana, which is a profound state of equanimity, because the conditions are so refined and quiet, and then you let that beautiful state of mind fall apart, dissolve, slowly, you know, back into an ordinary state of consciousness where mosquitoes bother you, and what's unfinished on your to-do list bothers you, and obnoxious people bother you. And this bothers you, and that bothers you, and, and we're really then, right, with that, maintaining the profound sensitivity, because when we were touching into the deep state of quiet, the mind felt safe to drop all of its defenses. And most of our defenses have to do with being distracted, Or superficial, right? That's how we defend ourselves. But when we're in a really great space, we don't need armor. We don't need defense. So we drop it all. And then we allow the concentrated state, beautiful state to dissolve. And we are there with habit energies, reactions and dispositions and conditions that we're not in control of. And now, not only that, but we're much more sensitive. We feel everything much more profoundly because of the sensitizing effect of quiet. Just like when you go on a backpacking trip and you don't bring your cell phone, you're not going with anybody, everything, it's like hard even to be in your car. I remember this is way back in the early '80s. I did this long backpacking trip. We had to fly into this remote area where the glaciers are in the in Alaska. We did a two-week trip, and then we walked out, uh, and uh, sort of very obscure place corner in Alaska. And the first place we got to, well, this uh, person picked us up. Three big guys with all of our backpacking and ropes and ice-climbing equipment and threw us in the back of an old, beat-up car. <laughs> and uh, so we were just, like, piled in. And he dropped us off, and he drove for miles and miles. He was out hunting, I think. And he dropped us off at this one building, which was like a bar, um, mostly for hunters. And the love bug was playing on the TV... Right? And so just that walking two weeks in the wilderness and then walking into a bar, you know, where things were heated up in a microwave and there was the love bug was on the TV. And just the, like, it was, it was like tripping on some kind of drug. Just like how amazing it was. It was just like, because of the, just the sensitivity and and it's much more like when we're in a concentrated state and we come out, Every I mean, just having a body feels amazing. Walking feels amazing, seeing, hearing, right? The heart is just touched by everything. You hear this, people reporting in small groups of seeing a butterfly and it's so moving, right? Because we're so much more sensitive now. If we're in the middle of a busy day and worried about this and that, And a butterfly or whatever, a fish flop, jumps in the lake. It's like, who cares? But when we're sensitized, it's like everything matters. Somebody pausing at the door to let us go matters. Somebody arranging the shoes, it matters. You know, the little things that people do, cleaning up after themselves in the bathroom, wiping down the counter. All these things sort of touch our heart in a really beautiful way, including the things that irritate us. You know, somebody leaving crumbs on the dining room table. What? Are they mindful? Right? And we can just, like, have a whole fit about something, you know, who who knows what it was? We don't even know. I mean, we're just presuming. So this is... You know, we think they, a lot of times before we do these retreats, we think it's sort of like a spa, nice conditions, we'll hang out. But because of the, sensitize, the sensitizing effect of the practice, it's like everything bothers us. It's kind of a shadow. You know, we'd like the shadow in Dharma practice to be a bunch of equanimous people who are unshakable, you know, nothing bothers them. But actually, when you hang out in Buddhist You know, Buddhist centers or places where people are doing a lot of practice. You see, like, everybody's sensitive about everything. The kind of clothes they buy, the kind of scents, the kind of foods they eat, the kind of people they're capable or willing to be around. It's like, I need this, I need that, I don't want this, can't have that. And I'm not making fun of it. (laughs) I'm sensitive, too. I like my things. You can ask when sometime. <laughs> See,
1: that's, that's real
0: equanimity. The only movement was the eyebrow went up a little bit. <laughs> so we can, um, you know, use this terrain of the the retreat, moving now into the middle and the sensitivity and, and just play, you know, with this, initially it's just an idea, we fall, like I was talking about devotion, we fall in love with the idea of equanimity, the possibility of equanimity, being sensitive in a messy world that I can't control and being peaceful and doing what can be done and letting go like the Dalai Lama loves to quote you hear him all the time in his writings and talks quoting shanti deva this 8th century buddhist monk from india very famous character in the buddhist tradition and um, he wrote this treatise the bodhisattva bodhisattva way The Way of the Bodhisattva, I think it's called. And uh, he says something, at least the way the the Dalai Lama paraphrases it is, you know, if something bad happens, if you're struggling in life, some difficulties, well, if there's something you can do, do it. If there's nothing you can do about the problem you're experiencing, well, there's nothing you can do. In either case, why worry? Why get tight? If there's something you can do, do it. If there's nothing you can do, well, there's nothing you can do. And so this is sort of that, like why we end up falling in love and respecting the idea of equanimity. That makes so much sense. Reactivity doesn't make sense, like with the fly, (laughs) You know, like I was walking before the talk and the mosquitoes are really bad now. And uh, it's like one of the things we learn is that freaking out about mosquitoes just attracts them. Right? It's like we sweat more. It's like animals have a way of smelling fear. This person wouldn't be thrashing around if they didn't have good blood. <laughs> Didn't have something to lose. <laughs> Let me check it out. It's interesting. I mean, it almost seems that way. I don't know if it's just made up, but you know, when we're really cool in a equanimous way, really settled, really peaceful, it seems that bugs don't bother us as much, right? No, I'm not. I'm not like. <laughs> it's like the new insect repellent will be a little booklet <laughs> <laughs> Buddha dhamma as insecticide or repellent but it's just it's just kind of interesting to explore like what would equanimity how might non-reactivity, how might balance, evenness support this life in this moment? What would it look like? Does it help? Right? Because normally what we're doing unconsciously, because we're just acting out habits, is as if we were to say out loud, you know, things aren't the way I want them to be. How about I get reactive? Now, how about I begin to struggle how about I complain? How about I fantasize about something that's not going to happen? As if that's really going to make the unpleasant conditions I'm dealing with better. But that's what we do, right? A lot today. How many moments, how many minutes, hours, was our strategy to feel good, basically some version of... I don't like what I'm feeling, so I'm going to try my best to not be here. Even though I'm going to be here, I'm going to pretend that I'm not here by generating a story and then pretending that that story is reality so that I forget the reality that's actually real. And imagine the mental construction is reality for a while, until it gets a little old or a little stressful, and then it feels even worse to come back into the reality of the mind and body. So we're even more desperate for another thing to get lost in. So we jump ship from one distraction to the next, worrying about this, fantasizing about this. So that's what breaks our heart when we see that, honestly feel what that feels like, And then we're willing to explore the taste of freedom, right? Equanimity is the taste of freedom. And the means, this is why it's linked up, as I said earlier, with uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension. It's a term that's used a lot because when we keep the present moment in mind, that's mindfulness, then wisdom can comprehend how things happen, how things come to be because mindfulness allows the mind to see moment by moment how things are unfolding and so then the wisdom can comprehend cause and effect basically how oh, this is how the mind gets so discombobulated so beat up, so oppressed oh. This is how freedom arises, how love arises, how forgiveness arises, right? Because mindfulness, keeping the present moment in mind, it really sees like what are the supporting conditions, what gets in the way, what's helpful, what's not helpful, what's skillful, what's not skillful. That's the clear comprehension. So, if nothing else, you know, like tomorrow, tonight, and tomorrow, you know, get really interested in, with that mindfulness and clear comprehension, really see how the various habits of reactivity, the various habits of distractedness, how it doesn't help. And how, however feeble, Whatever balance, whatever evenness, whatever confidence and non-reactivity we can sustain, you know. And it's a, the, one of the reasons we don't like where, where the Buddha's pointing, what the Buddha's pointing to is that the Sharon Salzberg labeled this as the torment of continuity. Because equanimity like freedom is a very alive thing. It can only be moment by moment. See, what we'd like is freedom that's a place that we get to. I'm in heaven and I'm free forever after. That's what we really like. But what the Buddha points to isn't that freedom ever after. He's really pointing to an act, a very active, alive, Balancing, right? Always the mind, wisdom, because of its intimacy, it's always keeping itself in this balanced place, not confused, not getting pushed around, adapting, adjusting, accommodating. Initially, it feels really like a torment because. It's not our habit to be mindful. It feels like a lot of work. And the real breakthrough comes not because it isn't a lot of work, but it's more that the mind, wisdom, realizes that nobody's doing all of that work. It's like when we're standing. Wyn was mentioning this this morning, when she gave standing meditation instructions. Like normally we stand fine. You know, we can stand for a long time. And it's not a problem. But once you start noticing, like with more intimate present moment awareness, all the little adjustments that are happening, then all of a sudden it starts to feel like worked to stay upright. It never was work, but all of a sudden it feels like work. But the mind knows how to do that on automatic pilot, how to stay upright. I mean, we can drive in heavy duty traffic on autopilot, listening to some amazing podcast, or usually having a a deep conversation without getting an accident. Gabe was talking (laughs) to me about driving back from his three or his uh, month long retreat and uh, in a long or a deep conversation and uh, had an accident. But we can sometimes like really be involved, like not in the driving at all, and just speeding up, slowing down, turning this way and that way, without a problem. Until, you know, till it is. So, this can happen with wisdom too. Initially, because we're creating a new habit, like the habit of calm, the habit of non-reactivity, the habit of balance the habit of recognizing it's just this being felt, just this being known, just this in-breath being felt, just this out-breath being known, just this yucky emotion being felt. It takes a lot of intention because there are a lot of programmed intentions that will dominate the mind unless we willfully intend to be present willfully intend to see the present moment as something being known. Otherwise, we're going to see it in a personal way because that's the deep habit. But the more we do this, the more eventually that becomes the nature of the mind, the habit of the mind, to see with wisdom. So we're reforming our perceptual mechanism from perceiving or interpreting experience from a self-centered point of view to seeing, interpreting, perceiving, experience from a more naturalistic point of view. It's just stuff happening, coming and going. And that whole dance of kind of maintaining, moment to moment maintaining the ecology of the heart and mind, the wholesome qualities, watering, strengthening these, and kind of... Um, you know, cutting off the juice of these other unwholesome mental qualities and just keeping the mind in this beautiful, enlivened, wise balance. But that can happen automatically. I'm sure some of you have seen this movie, uh, kind of made a bit of a splash. it on the plane recently, The Big Little Farm, I think it's called. And... um, But just to make a a short synopsis, a young couple, um, Hollywood types, decide to become farmers and thought it would be a good film project, and they got some funding, and they filmed it over seven, eight years, something like that. So it was a big investment. Somebody put out the money. They bought this 200-acre farm in California, north of L.A., and really run down, and that they had this sort of advisor whose basic um, premise was the more diversity you have in the farm in terms of livestock and plant life, the less work ultimately will be, and the more productive it will be. So instead of a monocrop just growing corn or just growing peaches, you know, you have a little of everything, lots of fruit trees, vegetables, crops to feed the livestock, lots of different livestock, and basically working with nature instead of against nature. Well, it was a mess. (laughs) It's really a a moving film. I thought it very moving. Um, But there's some deep truths there just about our, our mind, too. Like the usual approach... With our mind, with our heart, is to try to control nature. You know, to sort of use muscle and willfulness to kind of beat down the parts of the mind, the habits of the mind we're not liking in that moment and force in the qualities that we do like. But the real way is to keep tending the garden moment by moment. Always See, there's always something to do in terms of cultivating a beautiful mind. And initially it feels like, I'd rather be lazy. I'd rather, I mean, I really feel this strongly, this conditioned habit, just to be distracted. There's a certain satisfaction in realizing that there's a well-written spy movie, you know, or... Clever, it's well produced, and it's like got several episodes. It's like there's like oh, to not have to be me for a while. It just seems like it doesn't get much nicer than this. I mean, really, there's part of the mind that would prefer that to like being in a really beautiful place in nature i mean doing a lot of things that we would consider so much more healing and wholesome just not to have to exist to absorb into a good book a good movie a good tv program and to disappear and it actually kind of works except we it always ends that's the difference that's why, like in the Buddhist cosmology, being in a angelic realm, a really beautiful realm where the conditions are really sweet for a long, long time. I mean, they describe it, if you're around uh, Common Ground in the fall, Ajahn Poonadhamma is coming for his yearly visit to teach in October, and he's going to give some talks, a Friday night talk and a Saturday workshop on the Buddhist Realms of existence, this kind of cosmology. And there are these really exalted, beautiful, deeply satisfying realms, except they have one problem. They're not permanent. And it's so shocking, it's such a betrayal, like in these stories, when you've been, you know, a beautiful body of light for eons and eons of world expansion and contraction, you know, big bangs, big dissolutions, big bangs, over and over again, so for a long, long time, in the peak of your sort of youth and just all the conditions, just as the mind would like them to be, and then it ends. It's such a shock. There's no, like, at least in human life, we kind of get some warning signs, about impermanence. But as it's described in the the sort of more subtle realms, there's no warning. You go from perfect youth to death very quickly. So you can imagine how disorienting it is. And then depending on the seeds and that angel, that celestial being's heart, they could go from there to being in a really dense or gross realm of existence. There's no guarantee because you were in a really refined realm that your next birth will be in a refined realm. Now, I'm not saying that this somehow maps onto reality, except that it's a useful story about why, you know, living, working really hard to get a beautiful place in Edina, who aren't from Minneapolis, it's a nice suburb in Minneapolis, you know, where nice yards and interesting restaurants, and or whatever, you know, condo in downtown Minneapolis for some of you, or, you know, an artist loft in some wonderful place. So whatever would be just the ticket for you, right? The trouble is, it ends. And so keeping equanimity, this non-reactivity, then we actually get interested when there's knee pain, or when it's humid, or the mosquitoes, because it allows us to explore the happiness of non-reactivity, instead of the happiness of getting what I want, but knowing it's going to change. So it's not really happiness, right? It's just a temporary landing place. When it comes our way, when they serve the meal you wanted, then definitely notice the pleasantness of that. Or when you get to bed at night and it initially feels really good to be in bed, really let that land. It's really appropriate. You don't want to dismiss it. But take in the whole picture and this will end. So then... Because we also have to practice equanimity with pleasant, where it's just pleasantness. We're intimate, we're really feeling the pleasantness, but we're not mistakenly thinking that it's more than what it is. Just like when it's unpleasant, not mistakenly thinking it's more than what it is. It's just knee pain. It's just the unpleasantness of boredom. It's just wanting the sit to end. Wanting the to end is just this feeling being numb. Is it actually in the way of equanimity, the peace of non-reactivity, the peace of not needing reality to be different than it is? You see, the reason we call that in the Buddhist tradition "on un- the unconditioned is... The peace of not needing conditions to be different than they are, how can you take that away from me? Can anybody take that away from me? The peace, this attitude, this understanding of not needing anything to be different than it is. See, that alone is not subject to change. When the mind understands that peace, of not needing things to be different, that peace is dependable. That happiness is lasting, can be lasting. But the mind has to first value equanimity, and then, you know, with the valuing of, valuing of it, it gets interested. It explores the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience in terms of the peace of not needing things to be other than they are, the piece of non-reactivity. So when it's pleasant, we are intimate with the pleasant, and we know it won't always be this way. So we're not building a self around the comfort that we have. We have comfort, we're letting it in, but we're not our happiness isn't dependent on the pleasant conditions. And when it's unpleasant, we're intimate, relaxed, knowing that things come and go, knowing that things change. So we're not bothering constructing a self who's suffering because the conditions aren't the way I want them to be. I'm just not going to do that. It's true on this relative from this relative point of view these are not the conditions i want these are not the conditions i prefer but these are the conditions that are here now and why would i in the full light of awareness why would i construct the sense of me who can't be happy with these conditions what value is there in constructing that sense of me How about I just be with these conditions? If there's something I can do that doesn't cause anybody harm, by all means, do it. If there's nothing I can do to make these unpleasant conditions go away, or nothing I can do that doesn't cause harm to others, then I'll just patiently endure the unpleasantness, but without being somebody who doesn't like it. That I don't have to do. I don't have to react to unpleasantness. And this is that, you know, uh, this enlivening attitude of patience is really closely linked with equanimity, especially equanimity with unpleasantness. It's an enlivened quality. It's not like bearing. It's like It's liberating to, you know, to what in in any moment that the mind realizes, basically realizes I'm not dependent on these conditions getting better. From this ordinary point of view, of course I want the conditions to get more favorable. But my happiness, my well-being isn't dependent. And I'm finding this very useful as I'm my body starts hurting more as I'm in my 60s now. And uh, and just, you know, contemplating the facts of life, like where this is all going. <laughs> and uh, it's like, oh yeah, my happiness doesn't need to be dependent on having youthful energy. Or the other thing, you know, is our world... I'm not sure it's actually in a worse situation than generally it's been over the last 10,000 years of our civilization, but it seems that way. And so maybe it will get a lot worse, and there will be a lot of unnecessary suffering, more unnecessary suffering. But do I have to suffer because the world is circling the drain? My heart can be moved, I can feel, connect with the suffering. But what value is there in being another suffering human being? The Buddhist teachings are very pragmatic in this way. We don't suffer because we have reason to suffer. We would suffer if there's value in it, but there's no value in suffering. There's value in compassionate action, right? There's value in showing up and doing what can be done. There's value in not being distracted, being sensitive, because it really allows for a more appropriate response, being connected, being intimate, seeing clearly. But there's no value in thrashing around, because it's painful, because it's not perfect. It's like even the idea that conditions should be different. Part of what equanimity, the deeper equanimity, and I'll talk more about this later in the retreat, part of the experience of that deeper equanimity is understanding that things can't be different than they are. Given everything in motion, I mean, it seems funny to say it this way, but this moment is perfect, or this moment is perfectly expressing everything that's in motion. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that there isn't great, terrible injustice. Clearly, things are not fair. There is not justice in the world but things are perfectly the way they are. They're perfectly expressing, rather, the causes and conditions. And the appropriate response comes not from saying no, but from saying yes, really connecting. Oh yeah, this is how it is now. Let my heart respond with compassion. I'll just end with a little quote. This is uh, Sharon Salzberg uh, in her book, Heart as Wide as the World, talking about patience. She writes, true patience is constancy. The consistent willingness to use this moment of reality as a vehicle for wisdom and compassion. Patience is not about gritting one's teeth and saying, I'll bear with this for another five minutes because I'm sure it will be over by then and something better will come along. Patience is not dour and it is not unhappy. It is a genuine connection with whatever is happening right now. Patience is a great power. The Buddha talked about it as both the highest austerity and the highest form of devotion. Patience is a steadfast strength that we apply to each moment. It does not imply a sense of succumbing to a complacent giving up or even an endless standing by. Patience does not mean being enslaved by the moment, nor does it mean that we must accept whatever comes without ever taking action to change things. If the moment requires taking some kind of relevant action, we must do so. What is most important is the way in which we take action. Patience is actually quite simple. It means a full and open connection to the moment, a connection that involves tremendous integrity. So let's just sit for a few moments and... Let go of the words, meet our life just as it is, meeting our body, our heart with a lot of integrity now,